Hey, this is Perplexing Ruins, and you're listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In the previous chapter, the PCs conduct their search of the dungeon beneath the old sawmill. Past the cell where Shawnee has trapped the carrion crawler is another deadly threat. A trap has been hidden in the ceiling. It's a rack of iron spikes weighted on one end that will swing down and directly into anyone who steps on the trigger button concealed between the flagstones on the floor. Miraculously, nobody steps on it, and so the PCs bypass the trap, never even knowing it is there. In the next room, they find three cages. They are sized for children, and the companions must steel themselves against the potential to find something truly awful while they are down here. The next room is a torture chamber, but the devices here are clearly not intended for use on children. That's cold comfort, but it's better than the alternative. Yellowfly discovers that there's something behind an Iron Maiden, standing up and flush with the wall. It doesn't take long to find the keyhole, but where is the key? Cole figures it out. The key is hidden under an especially nasty torture device that must have been called the Iron Wolf. It opens a secret door in the Iron Maiden that opens to a small office. Here, they find a locked metal strongbox and a few papers covered in the same coded writing Catsbane deciphered before. He does so again and turns up a few answers and also a few questions. It seems to be a list of captives and those who paid to have them held and possibly tortured. One of the names on the list of purchasers is Captain Bellick. This confirms that Bellick is working with the Weeping Eye. Most of the other names are unfamiliar. Most, but not all. The last name on the list is known to both Cole and Tamlin. Tamlin especially. It is Brewer Luton, or as Tamlin knew him, Father Luton. It would seem that the cleric's erstwhile mentor must be dead. Tamlin is so upset he feels the need to leave, so he does, marching right into the hall where the trap is waiting to be sprung. Tamlin has no idea, in fact none of them do, that the hallway he has just entered is fitted with a deadly trap that, by freakish good luck, the companions did not spring on the way in. I used the BX rule that says a trap is not always sprung automatically. Each person passing a trapped area has a 2 in 6 chance of triggering the trap. Perhaps this rule was created so that the lead person in a marching order was not the only one to be at risk. Who knows? Anyway, this trap is a rack of iron spikes secured to the ceiling by a hinge and held in place by a little wire pin. Stepping on a concealed button a quarter of the way down the hall in this direction causes a hidden wire to pull that pin out and sends the weighted rack swinging down right into the victim. 
Since the trap is really meant to protect against invaders coming in, I'm going to say that if the trap is activated by one of the PCs on the way out, the person in most danger of being hit by it will be the next person along in the marching order. Tamlin is entering the hall alone, so if he springs the trap, it's possible it won't hit anyone. Well, before I figure through all that, perhaps I should find out if he does or does not step on that little button. Rolling a d6. A 1 or a 2 means he does. Rolling. Ooh, a 2. He does. Now I think I need to make another roll. This time it's a saving throw versus... Hmm. I think petrifaction is actually the best match in this case. Don't ask me why, it's just my gut instinct. But since there's no one behind him, I'm going to say that he gets to roll with advantage. Let's see. The rules say that the target number to beat is a 14. So, rolling 2d20. A 9. And... A 17. Well, what do you know about that? Chapter 15. Part 1. Day 50. Noon. Party status. Yellowfly. 15 of 15 hit points. Tamlin. 7 of 7. Cole. 12 of 12. Shawnee. 8 of 8. Catsbane, 6 of 6. Spells available. Tamlin has prayed for. Cure light wounds. Catsbane has memorized. Magic missile. Tamlin needed to get out of this place. The news about Father Luton had started a strange pressure in his brain, and it had grown stronger and stronger until he started to shake all over. He stumbled down the hall. There ahead was the door with the terrible creature behind it. What on Merith was he doing here? Who did he think he was? This was crazy. He had to get out and away. He thought he might be about to faint. Suddenly, he heard a pair of clicks, one quiet and small under his right boot. Then a second much louder one above and behind him. Adrenaline brought him instantly back to his senses. He dove forward as reality suddenly clarified around him, and all the panic and sorrow were replaced with a purely instinctual desire for survival. <gasps> he landed on his front, scraping his palms on the floor when he felt and heard a tremendous whoosh pass over him. He hit the floor right beside the closed cell door. Little pink tendrils were squirming just under the doorframe, inches from his face. He yelped and pushed himself away and found himself lying on his back, looking up at a heavy spiked pendulum of iron and wood. The bed of terrible spikes rocked menacingly back and forth over the spot where he had been a few moments ago. It slowed and finally stopped. Cole was right behind it. Tamlin, are you all right? Tamlin got up and looked down both his arms and his body, making sure he was all in one piece. I'm all right, I think. His heart was hammering in his chest and his breathing was shallow. The others were just arriving, having been drawn by the noise. Their alarm was replaced with relief when they took in the scene and understood what had happened. Pushing the big rack of spikes up and out of the way, they managed to pass safely underneath it and to the other side. There was no reason to stay underground any longer, and so they made their way to the exit, casting back frequent glances at the door that hid the carrion crawler. By now, every single one of them was feeling anxious and looking forward to standing under an open sky once again. Hello and welcome to my promotional trailer of enticement. My name is Art the Solo Gamer and I am the storyteller and game master for a bi-weekly actual play podcast called The Solo Gaming Experience. 
Each season I use a different RPG system, with some solo components thrown over the top of it, to hopefully tell the best story I possibly can. Join me on the Solo Gaming Experience, that's the Solo Gaming EXP, on any podcast platform near you. I humbly thank you in advance. It was mid-afternoon when the journey began back to Mirpool. Cole was carrying the lockbox under one of his thickly muscled arms. It had proved too large to fit into any of their packs. Tamlin was uncharacteristically, but understandably, quiet. Once, before they left the sawmill, he had suggested that they look for a burial site, but Yellowfly had refused, saying that if they left right away and made good time, they could be back in Silmoral before midnight. Lord Rabbit would still be up and he could make his report and warn him about Bellic. The news can't wait, Tam. Besides, there's very little chance we would find anything even if we searched for hours. The woods are thick and stretch for miles. Tamlin had tried to argue his case once. It must be close by. They wouldn't have bothered to carry the bodies very far if they didn't have to. Far enough to keep the animals away from their hideout, though, Shawnee had countered. Listen, I know you're upset about your friend, Tam. It's a terrible thing to learn, but finding a mass grave is not going to help anything. It's not going to make you feel better, either. If you want to honor the spirit of this man, then you can help me to find and punish those responsible. We're going back. That's my decision. If you wish, tomorrow morning you can head west to Nepal for a few days and put your mind at ease. You know, make sure it's the same person. Tamlin didn't reply, but started walking back in the direction of Mirpool by way of answer. That was good enough for Yellowfly, who followed, along with the others. It was a somber walk among shady pines and a sun-dappled forest floor, strewn with fallen brown needles. They went in near silence. Perhaps if they'd been talking, they wouldn't have heard it so clearly and so early on. It was indescribably beautiful. Each one of them slowed and then stopped to listen. Then, without a word of discussion, as one, they started walking again, quickly now, and in a different direction, heading away from town and straight towards the distant voice. Dramatis Personae, Catsbane. Young Phelan had never been very close to his father. Ketrel Orla was an immensely strict man and an important figure in Silmoral. Father and son rarely saw each other, as Ketrel was often out of the city, conducting business, or else at Whitestone Castle currying the favor of the nobility. For this reason, at a very young age, Phelan developed an attachment to his mother that was, at least in his father's estimation, too strong. During those rare times when the whole family was together, his father would often scold him for this. He could grow suddenly angry, especially on those days when he was vexed by business problems. He vented his frustrations at the boy. You'll grow up to be a simpering girl if you only spend time with your mom. Get outside, build something, throw a ball, do something. A boy would do, damn it! Did I have a son or a daughter? Oh, yes, that's right. Go hide in your mother's skirt, as you always do. His mother's personality was almost completely opposite. Phelan had often wondered, with the naivete of childhood, how his parents could possibly be in love. Chinati Orla was a beautiful woman with flax-colored hair, brightly smiling eyes, and freckled cheeks. She had not been born into wealth, but had married into it, securing a considerable fortune for her own parents in the arrangement. Young Phelan's only competition for his mother's affection came from her horses. Chinati kept three of the animals at her parents' farm, and she visited them every chance she got. 
always taking Phelan along with her. And so, much of his boyhood was spent in the countryside, in the company of his grandparents and his mother and her three horses. He would often play by himself, just outside the stable doors. He loved to listen to his mother sing, and she always sang when she fed or groomed the animals. She didn't know any songs, so she just improvised, singing to them in vowels. Once, Phelan had asked his mother why she never sang songs with lyrics. Mum, how come you never sing any real songs? Songs with words in them? She had replied, grinning, that her memory was so poor that she was unable to remember the words to any songs. And besides, the horses wouldn't understand them if she could. They had shared a laugh at that, and she had hugged him tightly, saying as she often did how much she loved him. It was a bitterly ironic death that came for Chinati. She had been riding Ranger, a frisky tan stallion, when the accident happened. A length of a broken rein with a rusty bit had been dropped by the roadside, and the horse had mistaken it for a snake. It had reared up, throwing Chinati to the ground, where she struck her head on the exposed root of an elm tree. Either the fall or the blow to the head took her life. When Ranger returned to the farm, riderless, the alarm went up, and shortly thereafter the tragedy was discovered. That was the last time Phelan ever visited his grandparents' farm. Only one year later, his father took a new wife, another country beauty, this time with long, dark curls. A harpy is a horrible creature, an aberrational thing with the lower body of a giant bird and the upper body of a twisted crone. It's created by a hag or some other evil spellcaster by linking the life force of a child to a minor demonic entity. It uses its sliver of humanity as a weapon, being able to tap into pure and innocent energies and memories to produce a song that mortals find almost irresistibly beautiful. Those who hear it are compelled to follow the sound, straight towards the harpy, who often places some kind of hazard between her and her prey. This harpy has put herself in a tree opposite a sheer 20-foot drop over a rocky outcropping in the hillside. Each of the PCs will be allowed to save versus spells to resist the lure of the harpy's song, those who fail will walk straight into the creature's trap and take falling damage before the spell is broken. And then they'll still have a tough fight on their hands. Harpies have an armor class of 13 and are resistant to magic. They get a plus two on their saving throws against it. And they attack with a claw-claw-bite combo doing one to four, one to four, and one to six points of damage respectively. With three hit dice, they are tough to kill. This one has, let's see, a five, a five, and a one. Okay, so that's under half, so my minute rule will kick in and boost the Harpy's hit points to 12. Well, that's actually good news for the PCs. One last thing to mention, and this is also good news for the party, is that Harpies have a fairly low morale score. Their morale is only a 7, so they will fly away if things go poorly in a fight. Speaking of a fight, combat is pretty much inevitable here. But first, we need to roll the PCs' saving throws. Okay, the rules say that our fighters need a 16 or better on a d20, and the other classes need to beat a 15. Not great odds, to be honest, but let's get to rolling. We'll deal with the two fighters first. Yellowfly needs a 16 to resist the harpy song. He gets... a 4. That's a fail. How about Cole? A 17? <laughs> what do you know? The others need a 15 or better. Here's Shawnee's roll. A 2. Ouch. Tamlin's got... a 3. And Catsbane? He's only got 6 hit points, by the way and a fall like this could easily kill him. I've got an eight. Okay, well this is shaping up to be the most deadly encounter the party has yet faced. 
together, the PCs are about to sustain 8d6 points of damage. I do have a bad feeling about this. Now, I can't speak for the others, but as Catsbane walks towards his doom, I think we know what he hears. Chapter 15 Part 2 Day 50 Afternoon Party Status The party status is unchanged. Tamlin, Yellowfly, and Shawnee undoubtedly heard someone else in their heads, but for Catsbane, the voice belonged undeniably to the person he wanted to see again more than anyone else. He had missed her terribly all these years. Mom? He knew it was. And so, just like the others, he turned and moved towards her voice, completely forgetting everything else. There was no Mirpool. There was no cipher incriminating Bellic. There was no church. There was no weeping eye. There was only... Mom, is... is that you? What's happening here? Hello? Fly, where are you all going? Following behind them was Cole. His voice was far away and indistinct. Small. Unimportant. The only thing that mattered was up ahead. Not so far now. Tam, it's me. Don't you know who I am? Have all of you gone mad? Stop for a moment. Where are you all going? What is happening? The blunted voice of his companion continued in the farthest periphery of his awareness. At one point, he was restrained. A hand gripped him and he could not continue. But then he was released and found himself walking again. Catsbane's heart swelled in his chest and he was filled with pure joy. Everything was brighter, more colorful. The green, yellow, orange, and crimson of the leafy canopy, with its breaks of blue sky above and beyond. Even the gray rocks and dun-colored pine needles, spongy under his steady tread, were more interesting, patterned like a mosaic. He was almost there now, and he was smiling from ear to ear. The enthralled PCs are headed for a sheer drop and are about to suffer significant falling damage. There's no question that the most dangerous part of this upcoming encounter will happen before the two sides even engage. With combat inevitable, I want to give Yellowfly and the others a fighting chance, but I don't see how I can even allow an initiative roll. They are going to fall. What I can do is this. I'm going to make a special ruling and say that Cole, once he sees the first few of his companions walk right off the edge of the small cliff, will throw the strong box he carries to the ground and grab whoever is closest, restraining them. The other three unlucky PCs will take their fall. Then the harpy will cease her singing and attack, so the effect of her spell will end. So, who does Cole manage to hold back? Given a choice, I think he'd grab Tamlin, but maybe Tamlin is not the closest within reach, so I should make it random. Using a d4 to determine if he's closest to Yellowfly, Shawnee, Catsbane, or Tamlin. Here's the roll. A three, it's Catsbane. Now, Catsbane has already been restrained once by Cole earlier, but the big man let him go when he saw the others continuing to move away, drawn by the harpy's song. In a way, grabbing for Catsbane makes the most sense. The others would have gotten a little head start when Cole first restrained the young wizard. Well, Catsbane may be saved from the fall, but it's cold comfort. I hope I haven't doomed the rest of the party in designing this challenge. There's only one way to find out, and there's no point in putting it off. Let's roll some dice and see what happens. We'll start with Yellowfly. He won't be killed by this fall, but he can certainly be hurt. Rolling. 
Seven points for Fly. He goes from 15 to 8. Shawnee is next. She has 8 hit points, so she's in danger of losing her life here. The roll. A 3 and a 1. Yes, that's just 4 points. She loses half her health, but Shawnee will live a little longer. Tamlin is last. He has the fewest hit points with just 7, and I need to make another low roll or he will die. Here goes nothing. I've got a 7. Well, I was afraid of that. But there's no time to mourn the cleric's death right now. As soon as the harpy ends its song, it swoops down to attack. Entering combat. Round 1. The party has been separated into two groups. There's Cole and Catsbane, who's just coming to his senses at the top of the cliff's edge. The harpy, perched in the tree near the bottom of the drop, and the three unlucky PCs who took the fall. So, for initiative, I'll be rolling three times. For Cole and Catsbane. Four. For the harpy. Oh, a one. For the other PCs. Another four. Looks like I didn't need to roll three separate initiatives for this round, as all party members will act before the harpy can reach anyone. Well, this arrangement might matter in subsequent rounds. We'll see. Anyway, here's what the PCs do on their turn. Cole can see that when the strange song ends, Catsbane regains control over himself. At the same moment, there's a burst of movement from a nearby treetop, and a horrible and bizarre creature streaks from the upper branches, all talons and black feathers. At first, Cole takes it for a giant raven. Then, for one brief second, he catches the awful crone face with its mouth twisted in hate. He acts more on instinct than anything else, grabbing the hatchet from his belt and throwing it with all his might. He needs a 13 to hit. A 14. The axe strikes true. Feathers are shorn and blood is spilled from the harpy as it takes five points of damage. Catsbane won't even need to roll to hit on his turn. He wastes no time and casts Magic Missile. The slit in his forehead opens up and the alien eyeball pushes through the skin. There's a flash of light as a white bolt escapes from it, blasting the object of its gaze. The magic bolt will do two to five points of damage. This one hits four. Four points. The harpy is knocked to the side, its flight path disrupted by the force of the impact. The harpy has already taken nine points of damage, and the rest of the companions have not even taken their turns. This might prove to be a very short battle. Below, Yellowfly comes to his senses and manages to pull free his longsword. He lunges at the incoming threat, he needs a 13 to hit, but a 5 misses. Shawnee scoots back on her butt so that her shoulder blades push against the wall of the rocky ledge she's just fallen from. She knocks an arrow, pulls back, and releases. A 12 will hit. A 2. She can't aim properly from this position, and the shot veers way off to the left, sending the arrow into the trunk of a thick-barked oak tree. Now it's the harpy's turn, but the monster has already lost over half her hit points. It must pass a morale check or else flee. On 2d6, a roll of 8 or better will mean it will flee. I've got a 9. The creature shrieks in pain and anger before swerving sharply up, punching through the canopy of trees and receding into the blue sky until it is no more than a speck in the distance. It's not until the threat has passed that the companions realize Tamlin is not moving. When they go to him, they can easily see that the cleric's neck has been broken by the fall. A trickle of bright red blood traces a line from the corner of his mouth across his pale cheek. Tamlin's eyes are wide open, but they see nothing. His breast does not rise or fall. He is dead.
Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you enjoyed the show and would like to help to support it, there are several ways to do so, including a fairly new one. As you may know, I have a few items on DriveThruRPG. The latest is called Pendulum. To my delight, it achieved a copper bestseller badge within its first week. I did mention that on the show earlier, except that given how the production and finalization of each episode of Tale of the Manticore happens well in advance of release, it wasn't really possible. Who knows, by the time this episode is released, it might have achieved silver. Whether it does or doesn't, I'd like to thank you for its success so far, and I thought that, to celebrate, I'd post up the first of several expansion tables for use with the product. Even if you don't use Pendulum, these tables might prove useful or interesting to you. They'll be up on the blog within a day or two of the release of this episode. Of course, in addition to your support with Pendulum, I also appreciate every single recommendation, like, retweet, rating, and review the show receives. Speaking of, here's another one of your generous reviews. It was posted to Apple Podcasts by John Grayhar. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. John Grayhar writes, Thank you for producing this fantasy role-playing story game. This has helped me look into older-style D&D. Bravo. Thank you very much, John Grayhar. Glad to hear that you're looking into older styles of play. I have a few live table games going right now, spanning various editions, and I have to admit that my taste runs to the older styles in live play, too. Not just for the podcast, but it all comes down to taste, I suppose. And I'm probably grossly influenced by the nostalgia aspect for the games I grew up on. By the way, I really like your term, story game. It's much better than my usual semi-actual play, I think. Might have to steal that one. My thanks also go to the folks who lend their voices to the show. Kyellen is back in his role of Cat's Bane, and he's joined in the flashback scene by a newcomer to the show. I'm pleased to welcome David Cooper to the cast. David is on Twitter as at ThatDaveCooper, and can be seen in the new Netflix movie The Curse of Bridge Hollow, and recurring in the upcoming season two of the YouTube series PBC. On Tale of the Manticore, he plays Ketrel Orla, Cat's Bane's disciplinarian father. Thanks very much to you both, Kyellen and David. For listeners who use socials and would like to reach out, I'm on the usual ones. At Manticore Tale on Twitter and Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. And there's always email. Write in with your comments or questions to taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Slay the Stars, D&D Actual Play. Cosmic fantasy, dark fairy tale, shenanigans! Listen in Tuesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time on any major streaming platform. SlayTheStars.com. Persomnia at Astra.